Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dr Laurie Parsons is a senior lecturer in human geography at Royal Holloway, University of London. Laurie specialises in studying the global garment industry with a particular focus on Cambodia and Sri Lanka and has just written a book titled Carbon Colonialism, How Rich Countries Export Climate Breakdown. Now carbon colonialism is a phrase you may not have heard of before but it's a phenomenon that is complex and of growing concern. In this podcast we're going to talk about the hidden environmental impacts of global production and we'll attempt to reveal the unequal landscape of exposure to climate change impacts, particularly for the global south. In the UK, as in many other developed countries, carbon footprints are reducing. The assumption is that our lifestyles are becoming more efficient and more sustainable. However, if this was the case, why are global CO2 levels still rising across the world? The answer lies in the term carbon colonialism. Good morning, Laurie. Thank you for joining us. Could you explain what carbon colonialism is? Well, yeah, uh, the answer to that is several different things. And that was one of the motivations for writing the book, really, which is that there are various different ways in which this term has been used over the last 10 years. So, for example, one of the most common ones that's come up a lot recently is uh, carbon offsets, which is where you take large areas of land and, for example, you plant trees or some kind of uh, carbon negative uh, greenery, and then you sell that kind of production, that carbon negative production to a company that produces too much carbon. And the idea is then that you offset and you get neutrality. So that's something that's been a relatively rapidly growing phenomenon in recent years. And that's one of the ways that carbon colonialism has been used. But it's not the only way. There's actually all kinds of different ways. For example, carbon outsourcing, which is where you have uh, a global or a large scale economic system and you count the carbon in one part, but you don't count it in the other part. So that's something that happens nationally. Uh, or internationally rather, with countries making goods for a different national market with that carbon remaining in their country and, and not keeping off the books, essentially, of the of the importing country. But it also happens uh, domestically. So, for example, it's been used by the geographer Joe Blakey to talk about uh, the domestic carbon emission calculation in relation to Manchester. And the same can, exactly can be said of London, for example, that um, you sort of offset within a region. Um, there are other examples as well, though. Uh, for example, the phrase has been used in relation to crackdowns on Sweden or slash-and-burn agriculture in the Amazon, which is a traditional way of life for many people. Um, but with the idea that this has been uh, labelled unsustainable, there's been big crackdowns on that. That's been labelled carbon colonialism by many people. And there's also some more fundamental critiques which have used this term, uh, for example, around the idea of carbon capture and storage, which is where you, you have a factory, for example, producing a large amount of carbon, then you manage to trap that within the system and then essentially sequester it within porous rocks. And this has been called carbon colonialism for essentially the idea that, that you have this kind of terra nullius, this empty space into which you can sequester or you can put your waste. And that's been viewed as, uh, as part of a wider system of, of colonial thinking. And again, in a slightly uh, related but not exactly the same way, it's been re- used very recently uh, by Max Liborion in relation to the idea of pollution as being colonialism. The idea that there's an acceptable threshold of pollution. So the idea of writing the book really is to bring together all of these different approaches and all of these different 
terminologies and ways in which the term's been used, with the idea that essentially these don't refer to separate processes. What they refer to is an underlying way of thinking about the environment and the usage of the environment, which is fundamental to the interaction of our economy and the environment within which it sits. And that actually, if we put all of these things together, then we can see that the environmental problems we're facing today in many ways relate to the same processes of globalization and economic development or economic uh, colonialization, which have defined the last 500 years. And who does the counting for carbon offsetting or carbon outsourcing or pollution as colonialism? Is the onus on private companies or is it academics or is it governments? Well, it depends on the particular example, but one of the key issues that we face in relation to outsourcing, which is one of the areas that I focus on most, is that overwhelmingly carbon is measured in terms of national statistics. That's how the uh, the UNFCCC's agreements that, for example, we saw at COP26, it's all about what individual countries will do. Uh, and one of the key things that I guess this book tries to explore and also which my work generally tries to highlight is that this kind of domestic uh, focus on single nations really misses the point of global production and its relation to carbon and its relation to sustainability. It doesn't make sense to measure these things domestically when we live and depend on a completely international system. And actually, one of the key problems we face is that the jurisdiction of carbon measurement doesn't match the the kind of the machine and the industry of its production. There's been an explosion in carbon credits since they were first introduced, I think, in, in 1997. Have they been a success overall? It depends who's asking and who's looking, and it depends on what terms you define success. So if you think of it in terms of one of the key uh, goals of green growth, for example, which is to produce economic output in a way that is linked to sustainability, then yes, they have been highly successful in terms of making a lot of money. The um, carbon credit market is now worth almost a trillion pounds, 850 billion um, as of uh, as of 2021. And that had grown 60% from the year previously. So it's hugely profitable, about 10% of that is profit. And uh, from the perspective of many people, it's uh, it's doing a good job at essentially attracting investment into what appear to be these green schemes. But then, of course, if we actually look at the impacts on actual industrial carbon output, it's far more equivocal. And one of the good examples of this is if we look at Europe, which is by far the biggest market for these schemes, about 90% of global schemes happen in Europe. A key issue is that the pricing doesn't reflect the reality of what it should be for carbon, essentially. And this is a point that's made by the uh, the writer and environmentalist George Monbiot, for example, he says that in order for these things to work effectively in the European context, carbon would have to be priced at around 50 euros per tonne. But the price has consistently hovered about 5 euros. And one of the reasons for that is that you have these huge exemptions which are granted to heavy industry and energy producing industry. And that that essentially undermines the whole system, that the most carbon intensive areas of our economy are exempted for economic and political reasons. And a key issue on a more fundamental level to these schemes is that you can't essentially take the politics out of the way in which carbon is allocated and, and measured and mitigated. That essentially these are powerful industries, they're important from a political economic point of view. And if we just see this as an economic equation, which will naturally bring down carbon over time, then it doesn't, it doesn't work and it hasn't worked, certainly on a global scale, which is what actually matters. 
that leads me into my next question. So I was about to ask about the, the national scale, and I was going to suggest that we should celebrate the reduction in carbon as a success story uh, in the UK, as we have our carbon levels as low as they were compared to the 1890s, I believe. But by the sounds of it, we should return to focusing on the global. Well, yes. Yeah, so one of the most interesting things about doing work in this area is doing it as a British person, because it's just such an interesting example. We are one of the best case studies of the kind of contradictions of, of green capitalism, um, as well as being one of the kind of most prominent colonizers historically. We also, subsequently, we have positioned ourselves as a world leader in, in, green, uh, in green economics and in sustainable economy. So the headline figure that you'll often hear bandied around, especially by politicians, is that we've managed to reduce our carbon emissions nationally by 44% since 1990. So in just over 30 years, we've essentially cancelled out a century of carbon emissions growth. And as you say, got back to 1890 levels, which sounds hugely impressive in itself. And in, in some respects it is, but the problem is, once again, once you look at things in a wider context and look at things in a little bit more detail, it looks far less impressive. Because over those 30 years, the main process which has been going on is essentially a huge economic shift in our country from being a manufacturing dominated economy to a services dominated economy. Services tend to be less carbon intensive than manufacturing. Now, does that mean we've learned new ways to produce the goods we use uh, in, a, in a more environmentally friendly way, a less carbon intensive way? Does it mean we're using or consuming less? Absolutely not. We're consuming more than we've ever consumed. The point is that those goods are now produced outside of our borders. And so they're no longer on our books. And if we actually account for the emissions that are produced to produce the goods that we all use, the same as we ever did in this country, then that 44% goes down to about 15%. And a lot of the work that I do is also highlighting how even that kind of 15% may be rather dubious if we actually look at the, the realities of production overseas. That In fact, a lot of the headline figures that companies will will uh, declare for their kind of carbon emissions associated with their production is is rather dubious in itself, and we can probably chip away further at that 15%. On a global scale, there's another problem, which is that although we've made this transition away from manufacturing and towards less carbon-intensive forms of economic production, ultimately you can't live on services. Someone has to make things. Someone has to make food. All of these things have a carbon cost, and we haven't solved that problem. We've just moved it. So again, this is an example of why you have to think of this problem on a global scale. Otherwise, you end up with wealthy, high-consumption countries such as ourselves here in the UK simply being able to take on the least carbon-intensive tasks and then pointing at everybody else for making the goods that we continue to use. Is it a classic case of shifting the problem elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. And this is an accounting problem, which, you know, accounting never sounds very interesting, but this is, a, <laughs> you know, this is the defining problem of, of our age is the way that we account for this production. And that's also a massive problem of, uh, of responsibility, because ultimately the ways in which you count what happens, the, the, the borders that you put around your economy define not only the, how you measure it, but also how you regulate it and where responsibility lies. You're quoted as critiquing the global supply chain um, as uh, out of sight, out of jurisdiction and out of mind. Um, we've touched upon that, but could you explain what you meant um, by that phrase? Yeah, well, so this exactly leads on from, from that particular point. So um, in the last 50 years, um, 
parallel in many ways to uh, the what we've seen in the UK is our, our huge shift away from manufacturing. The global economy has undergone a massive transition from one in which goods were primarily manufactured like we did in the UK within borders for use within those borders to this situation we now have which is the global factory where usually goods are manufactured often across multiple countries that you'll have you know the raw materials produced in one country then they'll be collected and and manufactured into a finished product in a, a second country often even a third country will do the packaging we call this the third the global factory and it's been facilitated by vast shifts some of which are high technology like telecommunications that allow factories to coordinate logistically with each other but some of which are also less glamorous so the fundamental the, the shipping container which is um, not something which is greatly heralded but completely changed the world of production because previous to having this universal tin can the universality of which is its key asset previous to that you enter a dock and you just have all kinds of materials you'd have all kinds of goods stacked up in ships holds you'd have to have a load of people to unload them each of these different goods would have to be sorted they'd have to be put on manifests and organized in a way that would take quite a lot of time now because you have these shipping containers that are just stacked from ship onto train or truck and they go straight from uh, origin to destination in a, in a way that is entirely automated really now this is essentially facilitated a situation whereby you can essentially have a production line that crosses countries and this has been hugely efficient in terms of efficiency savings it's it's meant cheaper goods as we're all familiar with it's meant the ability to consume more for less but the key problem apart from that consuming more for less which is a problem in itself environmentally the key problem is that as our factory the factory that produces our goods has become global we've lost the ability that we always had as a political economy to regulate it the fundamental principle of uh, of the organization of a nation like the uk is that fundamentally the economy is subordinate to the polity the government controls what the economy does and if the government doesn't want you know a particular sector of the economy to do something that can change it or it can ban it or it can make laws to shift that now as our factories become global we've lost that capacity it's very difficult for the uk government to say you know we don't want this factory in china to do that certainly in the sense that it used to do it we don't have that jurisdiction and then linked to this there's a second problem this is equally difficult really to to have genuine oversight into that global factory we have the technology to essentially make these global systems of logistics work but the distances are still important our capacity to actually genuinely have oversight to these huge international global factories is much reduced by its globality and so what we have is uh, a situation in which the global economy has essentially become disintegrated you have a major brand in in one country and then the individual parts of that supply chain they're not actually owned usually by the brand itself they're partner organizations and so we have a problem whereby if one of those partner organizations if one of those partner factories does something or is found to do something that the brand doesn't like or that the public doesn't like then ultimately they just cut ties with that factory move on to another factory and that factory moves on to another brand and the whole kind of merry-go-round continues that fundamental responsibility which is shaped by the everything being in the same jurisdiction has has been lost much of your work focuses on um the south asian brick belt could you explain what that is and and why that's important 
Yeah, so the South Asian Brit Belt is a vast area uh, which stretches all the way from Afghanistan via India, Nepal, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And it's essentially a huge area of land in which uh, a, a huge number of brick kilns are present because of the, the particular qualities of soil and water distribution, the availability of rivers, for example, because bricks take a lot of water to, uh, to produce. Now, this is um, a huge area, both in terms of the number of kilns, about 800,000 kilns across all of that area, and, and millions and millions of workers. It's also very important in terms of the, the conditions in which these bricks are made. Debt bondage, child labour, hugely prevalent, really endemic across many of these uh, brick kilns. Of course, there are more modern ones uh, which, which don't have these problems to the same extent. But even just in a general sense, the environmental impact of these, this kind of brick production is really uh, is really substantial. It uses a huge amount of earth. Uh, the the kind of what's known as black carbon, essentially soot, is so substantial that it contributes really massively to what's known as the Asian brown cloud, which is a huge kind of cloud of soot which hangs over the entire region, especially during that period of the year when brick kilns are operative. And that's been something which has been visible even in the climate record since about 1930. The impact of that on the monsoon. So it's a huge kind of environmental problem and. Obviously, it's a part of development and need to account for growing populations in these areas that these bricks need to be made. Uh, and again, that's kind of a, a global issue to deal with on a global level. But you may wonder what this has to do specifically with the UK. And that is that actually one of the surprising things that has occurred really in relatively recent times since sort of 2008-10 is that we have started as a country to import huge amounts of bricks from overseas. We're now the world's number one importer of bricks. We import about 400 million bricks every year. The majority of them come from the EU, but increasingly a, a skyrocketing proportion are coming from beyond the EU, especially in South Asia, where you have a huge amount of brick production. So we now import about 30, 40 million uh, bricks each year to the UK from South Asia, particularly India and Pakistan. So obviously there's a, there's a human rights aspect to the, the conditions in which those bricks are produced. There's also an environmental aspect to the conditions in which those bricks are produced. There's huge local environmental impacts from those kilns directly on the livelihoods of farmers and local communities. It intensifies the impacts of climate change in a very tangible way. And even perhaps most egregious of all is just the fundamental logic of moving these low-value, high-weight goods in vast numbers 18,000 kilometres along that shipping route from South Asia to the UK. To give you an idea of just how carbon intensive this industry is, uh, one shipping container containing about 70,000 bricks uh, will on its 18,000 kilometre journey from South Asia to the UK emit around 600 tonnes of carbon, which is in weight terms the equivalent of five blue whales of carbon dioxide gas. It's absolutely vast and we're importing hundreds of these uh, containers of bricks each year, a rapidly growing proportion are coming that far. So really, this is just a particularly clear and stark example of the logics of our global economy when it is considerably cheaper to do that, to import these low-value chunks of matter all of that way at vast carbon cost. And the one brick from South Asia, which has come all that way, has a, about triple the carbon footprint of one produced in the UK. And yet that is still much cheaper than producing them domestically, which shows, you know, where in the pecking order of our economy these kind of considerations sit. 
Globalized trade clearly um, defines the world today based upon what we've been discussing about the brick belt and offsetting or outsourcing emissions. Carbon colonialism has its roots in the slave trade. Is that correct? In the 18th and 19th centuries? Well, yes. So one of the things that uh, I like to do in considering this concept is to look at it in historical perspective. Because, of course, as I've said, globalization has absolutely skyrocketed in recent years, in the last 50 years, because of those logistical and technological developments. But that doesn't mean that it's a fundamentally new development. We talk about globalization like it's this new 20th century thing. In reality, what that is is an intensification of a process hundreds of years old of the separation of land, labor and capital around the world and the integration of this global economy, which absolutely has its roots in the slave trade. There's a very good and clear example uh, provided by, um, by a book that I like very much called Empire of Cotton by Sven Becker. And in that book, he outlines how central the British desire to control the global cotton trade was to the slave trade and the kind of global economy that resulted from it. Essentially, what we had was a situation where cotton became very popular in the UK. Uh, it was something that a lot of people wanted. And at the time, the idea of balance of trade was very important. You didn't want money flowing out and goods flowing in because that wasn't good for your, uh, your economic system as it was seen at the time. And in the UK... Recent inventions, such as the spinning jenny and, uh, and, and the steam engine, had for the first time produced this incredible capacity to make machines which could spin cotton and potentially make it very cheaply in the UK. The problem was that we didn't have anything like the land that we needed to produce the amount of cotton that the UK needed. It would be more than the entire land mass of the UK. And also we didn't have the climate for it. But what we did have was the US. We had the, the, the south uh, Mississippi kind of area where this was a hugely productive in terms of cotton. It was the perfect place to grow cotton. Problem was, no people. So what where did we get the people from? Predominantly from Africa. Then we imported this workforce to work on cotton plantations, created this global separation of land, labour and capital. And it's that separation which continues really to define our global economy today. That same system which was set in place is intensified and it's developed and it's changed. But it's that fundamental integration of land, labour and capital across different countries, which, has, which continues to define the way our economy works today. And the key thing, which I think is very important to the way that we think about sustainability and its relation to the economy today, also is the narratives, the cultural norms which underpin the imposition of that system. Because of course, if you just say, I'm going to go and enslave a load of people and I'm going to use them to work in my cotton plantations, then even in the 18th, 19th century, people might think there's something a bit off about that. So, of course, they had to have very strong narratives around why this was necessary, around development. And in particular, this idea, uh, which I come back to quite often, which is the idea of terra nullius, like the idea of an empty land. And that was fundamental to the development of this global economic system, which was hugely exploitative, of course, in many ways. It's still fundamental to the way that we think about our global economy the ways in which many of these economic systems arrive and develop in the global south, hugely problematic environmentally, socially, often very low wages, very poor conditions. And yet the idea of terra nullius is still very prevalent, the idea that essentially it's okay because before there was nothing, we're bringing something new. In reality, of course, there's nothing nullius about it. There's a huge amount going on. It's just a question of the perspective we bring to the development of our economy and the sustainability around it. And when we talk about the separation of land, labour and capital, as you just said, um, do all people equal carbon? 
do, and do all people emit the same amount of carbon? Yeah, I mean, so this is a good question because it's fundamental to the key sustainability debates um, that we face today. It's a really fundamental point. Because even if we think about some very high profile, very often very progressive environmentalists, one of the things you'll often hear is that there are just too many people around the world and that that is the fundamental problem. And that's an understandable assumption to make. And it underpins the whole way that we think about uh, sustainability, this idea that we just need to manage populations, so that individual people are the problem. They need to individually cut down on their carbon uh, usage to solve the problem. It's an understandable assumption because the global population has moved in parallel to global carbon output. So this huge explosion in carbon emissions has been associated with a huge explosion in population. But the problem is when you look a little bit closer, you find that actually... There's huge problems with this narrative that, you know, people are the problem. Let's compare, for example, a person from the US and a person from Ethiopia. The carbon footprints individually of those two people are vastly different. In the US, each citizen is associated with about 16 tonnes of carbon every year. In Ethiopia, it's about 100 kilograms. So 160-fold difference. Now, what this shows, unless you do some huge mental gymnastics to justify that, is that there's another factor involved here, which is more important than the person themselves. And that essentially, as I argue, is the capital. And that ever, wherever you have large, intensified areas of capital, essentially wealthy countries, but also wealthy areas within countries, that's where the carbon emissions are highest. Uh, And that's true almost universally around the world. If you look at, you know, the wealthiest parts of the UK, like London, you know, the carbon emissions of the wealthiest people within London are far higher than those of the poorer people. And again, looking globally, countries which have lower levels of wealth tend to have lower levels of carbon emissions as well. And so what this speaks to is essentially, there's a fundamental contradiction to our ability to continue to create wealth, whilst attempting to maintain a degree of sustainability, that that is a difficult circle to square. And is wealth the right thing to study when we are trying to understand uh, global growth? Um, Or should we look at resource extraction instead? So this, I think, speaks to the idea of of green growth in particular and the the validity of that that very uh, influential paradigm, which has been growing in influence since the 80s and 90s and really kind of had rocket fuel added to it in the late 90s and early noughties. Essentially, this is just in simple terms, the very simple idea that it's possible to what's known as decouple economic growth and one sustainability or carbon specifically. Uh, And the reason that that idea of decoupling is important is because if we look at historical graph of resource use or resource degradation and uh, economic growth, they move in absolute lockstep. More resources we dig up, the more growth we get. Uh, And that's also very closely associated with carbon. But in the 90s, we begin to get this very prominent idea that actually that's not inevitable, that our economy up to that point had depended on resource extraction, but we can have a different kind of economy which decouples economic growth from resource extraction. And for a brief tantalising period of about 10 years, from the late 90s to 2008, when the, uh, the Great Recession happened, it appeared to work. Economic growth and resource use diverged for a period. That's no longer the case. And actually, economic growth is now more resource intensive than it was previously. So 
essentially whether or not it's even possible to create growth whilst not degrading or using more and more resources is an open question. We had one brief historical window where it happened. Whether or not it's possible on a longer term basis is a real ongoing issue. And yet our kind of whole sustainability planning worldwide is based on the assumption that it is possible. That's the the road we're going down. Uh, and it's rooted in kind of uh, very prominent and uh, and celebrated economic models and theorists, in particular the work of William Nordhaus, a very famous green growth proponent. I think it's worth, in relation to these kind of models and the, the thinking that they underpin, it's worth probably pointing out that even in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, William Nordhaus cited four degrees as the optimal level of warming for the world. So even amongst the greatest and most widely celebrated proponents of this idea of green growth, there is an acceptance that very high levels of warming, very high levels of climate change are necessary in order to achieve any kind of sustainability. Um, with the subject of a system of environmental uh, domination, which, as we've been discussing, seems to have covered hundreds of years, or been hundreds of years in the making, how can we speak honestly about lifestyle change and the need to limit warming to 1.5 degrees? Um, how can we challenge the status quo? Well, this issue of lifestyle change is really important and something that I grapple with quite a lot because, you know, generally the people I talk to, people in general are very concerned about climate change. They're very concerned about the environment, especially now. We're at a domestic high of concern over climate change and the environment historically. So it's something that's really on people's minds. It's one of the biggest issues on people's minds and people really want to do something. Uh, the problem is that that doing something tends to be channeled down particular pathways which aren't necessarily that effective. People try to make lifestyle changes. They try to you know, take one less flight, for example. They try to use you know, green consumption guides to find the, the most environmentally friendly products. But as, in my view, the problem with this whole approach to sustainability is that we can't have sustainable consumption without sustainability regulation to underpin it. At the moment, what we have is, is a situation whereby consumers will seek out the most sustainable looking thing. But with everybody making, every company making sustainability promises, it's almost impossible to achieve a genuine appreciation of what is sustainable and what isn't. More fundamentally, the ability of companies to be meaningful, meaningfully sustainable is undermined by the lack of regulation to, to enforce it. Essentially, it's very profitable to appear sustainable. It's much less profitable to be sustainable. And in a competitive market, the problem is that, of course, all companies are just putting out green credentials, which mean relatively little. They're very shallow. And people choose between those shallow kind of green sustainable credentials. And ultimately, it doesn't do enough. Now, people can have a role in sustainably consuming, but only where there's genuine enforced oversight of what companies are stating. Until we have legal enforcement of our supply chains, then sustainable consumption is essentially just a red herring. It's a way to distract people from the problem. So in terms of what we need to do, well, I would say that the next time you find yourself researching an ethical purchase or a sustainable purchase, put down, close that browser, and instead send off a letter to your MP or get involved in your local council and lobby for genuine oversight of supply chains. This is something that people really need to get behind. And it was something that was unthinkable for many years because the narrative that we can't regulate things that are outside our jurisdiction held sway. But just in the last couple of years, 
We've seen the green shoots of a change of mind. We've seen a French supply chain law, which is pretty weak, and a German supply chain law, which just has come into place last year, and that's much stronger. Associated with that, we've seen a rapid, a very small but still rapid increase in the number of cases brought against companies for environmental degradation in their supply chain. For example, in um, in 2020, uh, only 38 cases were brought for environmental degradation in corporate supply chains. That was 193 the next year. So it's rapidly increasing, and the idea that we can hold companies to account and have legislative frameworks enforce environmental standards, not just within our borders, but in the goods we import, that's beginning to take hold, and it's really, really important. It needs to get people behind it. And I would say that until we have that, we need to move away from the idea of consuming and choosing our way out of the climate crisis and into the idea that we can take back control of our economy and our climate through engagement in uh, our political assets that we have in this country, our democratic ability to choose. Laurie, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.